Welcome to the premiere episode of the second season of the Campus Exchange, an AI for Students podcast. I'm Gil Guerra, an associate in AI's academic programs department. For those of you who are tuning in from Panorama or who are new listeners, the Campus Exchange is a podcast where we highlight different student events that our team at AI organizes throughout the year. For today's episode, we look back to an interview with former U.S. Representative Carlos Corbello that took place at the AI Student Conference on the Future of Hispanic Politics earlier this spring. Carlos talks about the unique role that Hispanic lawmakers are taking in American politics, the current ideological debates within the Republican Party, and the factors that influence the Hispanic electorate. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to check out our upcoming National Student Conference on Hispanic Politics, taking place at Florida International University from October 8th to October 9th later this year. Carlos will be featured as a breakout speaker at that conference, and you can learn more and apply the link in our show notes. Finally, please remember to subscribe and to give us a rating to help others find the podcast. If you're a college student, check out the links on our show notes to learn more about AI's work on campuses across the country, and be sure to follow us at AI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. With that, here's my conversation with Carlos Grabello. It's an honor to be here, and it's even more of an honor to get to introduce Carlos Corbello, whose example of principal leadership and public service has inspired countless young Hispanic Americans, myself included. Carlos represented Florida's 26th congressional district from 2015 to 2019. He served on several committees, including the Committee on Ways and Means, where he co-authored the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, comprehensive tax reform legislation that delivered historic tax relief, drove investment to challenge communities, and made American businesses more competitive. While in Congress, Carlos also led on climate policy, immigration reform, and gun safety. He co-founded and co-chaired the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus, served in a leadership role in the Problem Solvers Caucus, and in 2018, he led a discharge petition initiative that forced the U.S. House to debate and consider comprehensive immigration reform legislation, including a pathway to citizenship for DREAMers for the first time in a decade. He was ranked the fourth most bipartisan member of the House during his time in Congress and has now returned to the private sector. So, Carlos, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you, Gil. Many thanks to you and to Chris and to the whole AEI family. I have so much respect for the American Enterprise Institute, for all the knowledge and information uh, that you all put out there and for the wonderful contributions you make to public debate and discourse in our country. So thanks for inviting me to be a part of this special event. Great. So, you know, let's dive right in. Many of the students in this conference have some interest in public service or in influencing public policy. So, you know, when you were in their shoes, if you could sort of time travel back, you know, and can give yourself some advice uh, for the career trajectory that you wound up on, apart from investing in Microsoft, Amazon, GameStop, all of those, what advice would you give yourself uh, or, you know, to a college student who has similar sorts of interests? There's no substitute for experience. Um, reading books is very important. Taking classes is very useful. But I always found that getting in the game, so to speak, uh, doing internships, uh, taking jobs, even if they didn't pay very well at the beginning, and really getting that uh, on the field experience uh, is the best way, number one, to learn. And number two, to make sure that you actually enjoy what you think you want to do. I oftentimes tell uh, 
young people who who want to be lawyers or who say they want to be lawyers, make sure you spend some time at a law firm and uh, get a feel for what that's like. Uh, because I think a lot of people really like the idea of becoming a lawyer, uh, but only some people actually like practicing law. So uh, with politics and government and anything else, it's the same. Uh, you may think you want to be an elected official. You may think you want to be a public administrator. Uh, if you do, that's wonderful. We need good people uh, in, in all of those uh, fields. But uh, just make sure it's for you uh, and make sure you enjoy it and make sure that it uh, really gets you up every day because there's a chance that it may not. And then you get stuck. Great. And let's talk a little bit about political leadership. That's a founding principle of the Congressional Hispanic Leadership Institute, one of our sponsors here. There have been a number of very divisive, very controversial votes in Congress recently. Uh, there was a vote to impeach President Donald Trump. And there was also the vote to strip Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments. And looking at some of the Republicans who voted against their parties on either one of those votes, uh, Jamie Herrera Butler and Anthony Gonzalez both, both voted to impeach President Trump. And to and voting to strip Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments, Mario Diaz Bellart, uh, Carlos Jimenez, and Maria Elvira Salazar of Florida, along with Nicole Mayotakis of New York, all joined the Democratic majority and making that vote. Uh, taken together, uh, all the representatives who voted essentially against their party on those two very controversial votes were also Hispanic Republicans. Uh, taken together, they also constitute actually a majority of Hispanic Republicans currently serving in the Congress. Is this something that strikes you as a coincidence, or do you think there's more of an underlying factor here that led to that result? Gil, we're we're convening today, and and all the young people who are with us are are coming of age uh, at a at a difficult and toxic time in our country's politics, but not not only in our politics. I think it spills over more broadly into into our society, and uh, there's really a truth crisis in our country. Uh, the truth gets hijacked every day by extremists, both sides, uh, by bad actors, by people who don't have the public good in mind, uh, people who are selfish minded and are just looking to advance their own narrow interests. And what you're starting to see uh, in the Republican Party in Congress, and, and you just uh, mentioned uh, a few names, is people who our understanding that uh, we kind of have to take off the partisan uh, lenses and really defend the truth. And if someone like uh, Congresswoman Green is out there saying that school shootings were staged or that um, QAnon and the mainstream media are more or less the same, people have to stand up for the truth. It's not against her. Uh, it, it's a matter of defending the truth and committing to the truth. Uh, Liz Cheney, Mitch McConnell, uh, major Republican leaders uh, have stated now over and over again in the last few weeks, the Republican Party has to be a party committed to the truth. So I think a lot of us who come from Hispanic families, uh, some of us who were born in Latin American countries, I think we we have a special appreciation for this because we know that our families lost countries fundamentally to dishonesty, right? We, we all these uh, uh, revolutions have names, uh, the Castros, uh, Hugo Chavez, uh, Daniel Ortega, 
there, there are many uh, names that we can uh, go through over the last few decades. But fundamentally, all these people destroyed democracy in their countries by advancing lies, by advancing lies that sowed resentment and anger in society and led people to think that they needed some kind of radical revolution to save their society. Uh, we're still the greatest democracy in the world, but we face many risks today. And a lot of these stories that maybe we heard our parents and grandparents tell us about their countries, uh, what's, what's been happening here is starting to sound a little bit like that. So these, these young leaders that, that are getting ready to go out into the world, so to speak, uh, I really ask that you uh, follow the example of those in Congress and um, those in society who have made that commitment to the truth, to facts, to science, uh, because without that, um, it's very difficult to have a productive, uh, prosperous society where everyone can reach their potential, which is which is why so many of us embrace American capitalism and, and, and really uh, embrace free enterprise because we want every individual to flourish and to grow and to achieve whatever he or she wants to achieve. But if we don't have a rules-based, fact-based society where we're all committed to the truth, then that becomes very difficult. So these leaders that you mentioned, a lot of them Hispanic Americans who stepped out um, and broke with their party to defend the truth. I commend them, and I, I think we need a lot more of that. Great. And you know, let's talk a little bit more about what that uh, process is actually like. When you were in Congress, you were a member of the Republican Party. Uh, I mentioned this in your bio, but there were several times where you took stands that, at the time at least, were unpopular with their party on things like climate policy, uh, to name one instance. What is that process actually like behind the scenes when you are uh, in a position of leadership? Uh, do none of the other members of Congress sit with you at the cafeteria uh, as a result of it? Is there more acceptance of it behind the scenes? And fundamentally, why do you think we don't see more members of Congress taking these sorts of stance? Look, Gil, it's in, in almost everything in life, it's easier uh, to, uh, to get along just by going along. So if you're sitting with 20 of your Republican friends and <clears throat> 19 of them say, um, hey, uh, for example, this whole climate change uh, discussion is a hoax, this whole idea about uh, carbon dioxide emissions contributing to global warming, that's just fake and made up. Many times the easy thing to do is to either ignore it or say, oh, yeah, that's true. Maybe laugh it off. It's it's far more difficult to intervene and say, well, actually, I, uh, I disagree. This is why. And this is why we should be thinking differently and, and especially acting differently when it comes to this. So I found myself a lot of times uh, swimming against the current, uh, going against the grain, um, taking extraordinary actions to force important discussions and debates. We certainly did that on immigration. Um, you, you mentioned in my bio that uh, we led a discharge petition process. That's all technical and complicated, and we don't have to explain the whole thing here today. But, but essentially, it forced Republicans to have an honest uh, intra-party debate and discussion about immigration and members learn and a lot of preconceived notions were dispelled and people understood uh, better 
you know, why uh, a, a lot of these DACA recipients, it just makes all the sense in the world for them to be uh, American citizens because they've been here since they're two, three, four, five years old and grew up here and speak better English than some people who were born here. So um, I found myself in that position many times. But but look, I, I don't want to only uh, focus on on where Republicans can improve, but uh, you know, Democrats have a similar challenge. Uh, for example, I was excluded from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus by Democrats because I didn't agree with them on every issue because I was a Republican. They essentially said, no, you're not you're not Hispanic because you're not a Democrat. So I wasn't allowed to join a caucus that was formed to include all Hispanics serving in Congress. And that kind of attitude and mentality is also destructive, right? Where we just kind of shut out anyone who who doesn't fully agree with us. That's not what our founders had in mind when they developed a government that was that's designed to operate based on consensus, right? You have a House, a Senate, they both have to pass bills in the Senate. The threshold is higher for a lot of bills. Then you have an executive that has to sign the bill. Then you have a court system uh, that can review legislation. So we're really designed to sit at a table, bring our disagreements to that table, have a negotiation, give some, take some, and then move forward in a way where everyone gets something and the country and our communities are better off. That's not happening now. And I think that uh, this rising generation of, of leaders, business, civic, political leaders uh, has to not only be committed to the truth, uh, but also has to be committed to civil discourse and dialogue, using facts, using data, uh, not disqualifying people just because they disagree. Uh, these are all things that that probably our parents and grandparents taught us, but that a lot of adults in our society are not following. And the the, um, the victims uh, could be uh, the people who inherit this country. So uh, all of you who are listening, uh, today. So uh, it, it's important that, that all of us and that all of you uh, be a part of the solution and, and not make things worse. The incident that you mentioned when the Congressional Hispanic Caucus denied you membership after you applied to it has been in the news again recently because uh, with uh, the introduction of a few new freshman members of Congress uh, like Maria Elvira Sarasar, uh, Carlos Jimenez, just name a few, uh, who are also Hispanic Republicans, the question has come up again of whether or not they should apply uh, for membership of that caucus. Uh, there's also been talk of reviving the former Republican equivalent of that caucus. So you know, going forward, would you like to see you know, a bipartisan Hispanic caucus that accepts members of both parties? Or do you think really the viable way forward is to have uh, Hispanic Democrats in one caucus, Republican uh, uh, Hispanics in another caucus? How would you like to see that path forward play out? So, Gil, it's OK for members to organize with members of their party. That 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 makes all the sense in the world. But there should also be forums where members of both parties, and if one day we have more parties in this country of all parties, can come together. So when we set up the uh, House Climate Solutions Caucus, which you mentioned, it was the first ever organization dedicated to climate policy that included Republicans and Democrats. Democrats for years had had their own uh, environmental caucus. Republicans didn't have any caucus that was focused specifically on climate change and climate policy. 
this new caucus that we formed uh, was a great success because for the first time, Republicans and Democrats started talking about this issue, started understanding uh, one another's concerns, one another's objections, uh, one another's insecurities when it came to the issue. And in doing so, they started kind of holding each other accountable because once you have to explain something to someone who doesn't agree with you, you really have to get your arguments in order and you have to show evidence. And that's good for everyone. That's good for you because you become a better uh, proponent of, of what you believe or what you'd like to see. And it's also good for whoever you're talking to because they can learn from you. And of course, you can learn from, from them as well. So it's unfortunate the Congressional Hispanic Caucus has now officially decided that they will not accept any Republicans. So Republicans uh, only have the option of forming their own uh, or of restarting the uh, uh, House uh, uh, Hispanic Republican Conference uh, Assembly, I think it's called. I don't remember the exact name, but uh, they should do it. And maybe what they can do then is that those two caucuses can get together every once in a while and share ideas and figure out how they can work together on immigration. For example, you mentioned Maria Salazar. She wants to lead on immigration. She wants a, a path to citizenship for DACA recipients. She wants a fair solution for the undocumented who have been working in this country for many years and haven't committed any crimes or, or run afoul of the law. So why would Democrats want to exclude someone like that? It makes no sense unless they're insincere about wanting to advance uh, immigration reform. But but yes, uh, we, we need more, not fewer opportunities for uh, Republicans and Democrats to get together and to uh, try to build some consensus. Uh, although uh, we've had some setbacks, we've also had some successes. Look, I, I give a lot of credit to the uh, uh, Congressional Black Caucus. They have always welcomed Republicans. They've they've had disagreements. They've 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 had issues, but they have always welcomed Republicans. When I served in Congress, Mia Love was a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, Republican from Utah, and most of the CBC members were grateful to her. They said it made sense because if they needed something from um, House leadership, which at the time Republicans had the majority, Mia could help them. I mean, this is, again, th this is simple stuff, but it, it's just not happening. And the Senate, another development I want to highlight, Gil, is uh, Senator Coons of Delaware, Democrat, and Senator Braun of Indiana have come together to form the Bipartisan Senate Climate Solutions Caucus. Uh, so now the House Caucus has a companion in the Senate. Uh, there are seven Republicans and seven Democrats in that caucus. They work together. They talk. They uh, circulate uh, policy proposals. That's healthy. That's how our, our democracy, our republic, is supposed to work. In most cases, we're failing these days. Maybe there's one last question from my end. Uh, you mentioned that the Congressional Black Caucus, you know, in accepting Republican members, oftentimes that leads to difficult conversations whenever uh, you're sort of united around perhaps a common identity, but have these political disagreements. Uh, I think political disagreements is something that probably comes pretty natural to most Hispanics. Most of us come from pretty large families, and there's usually at least one member out there, usually an uncle, usually a Theo, who has, you know, sort of wacky uh, beliefs, you know, that uh, they're very opinionated about. When, but one of the things uh, that you mentioned is the importance of civil dialogue. It's something that both Chile and AI really care about, really care about promoting, especially among young people. Um, so can you give perhaps, you know, any any tips to students who 
might want to you know, reach out to someone in their classroom who you know might be a Republican or might be a Democrat, uh, might want to start having these conversations, but hasn't really had that experience yet. You know, how do you make those first steps, those first approaches, if you know for most of your life perhaps you haven't really talked to too many people who have disagreed with you politically? Well, I I um I think the best advice I have, Gil, is is um, uh, to quote a uh, slogan of a uh, famous American company: uh, "Just do it." Uh, just reach out to someone or maybe set up uh, a social uh, outing where it's two Republicans and two Democrats or two people who are on one side of the issue and, and two who are on the other side of an issue. And um, uh, just try to have a friendly dialogue and, and make it fun. You know, maybe, you know, go out for a nice meal or, or, or uh, go, go watch a game and then get together afterwards. It, it doesn't have to be unpleasant. We've, we've now been conditioned into thinking that the person who disagrees with us is our enemy. And um, especially in the last five, six, seven years, that political disagreements have to devolve into personal attacks and even family members refusing to talk to one another, people unfriending one another on social media. I mean, this this is evidence of a sick society, of a society where people cannot disagree respectfully. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick story. When I was growing up, I always remember my dad would tell me he, he grew up in Cuba and, of course, lost his country and, and went through a very rough time. And uh, he would always say, um, Carlos, remember that, you know, in this country, things are done differently. You know, the Americans, he would say, the Americans disagree respectfully, uh, even if even if um, things get tense, they'll make up and uh, and and they'll do what's best for for the country and for their community every time. Uh, it was kind of a version of what uh, Winston Churchill said about the United States, that, that we exhaust all all options before we do um, the right thing. I'm paraphrasing, but um, we're not doing that. We're not doing that anymore. And the 6th of January was evidence of that. Uh, I don't think anyone could have imagined that we would have an assault on the capital of the United States, that people would, U.S. citizens, not foreign enemies, U.S. citizens would burst into the capital with a goal of disrupting a democratic process, maybe hurting uh, constitutional officers like Vice President Pence, Speaker Pelosi, and others. We all need to do our part to change this, especially people in leadership positions, which includes everyone on this call today, because if you're here and you're taking the time to, to listen and to grow and to learn on a Saturday, you're a leader. You're, you're, you're distinct, distinguishing yourself from most people out there. Um, we need all of you uh, to help heal the society for everyone's benefit, including your own. Great. So we're going to turn over to student questions now. And our first question comes from Miguel del Valle, who asks, it seems that the current direction of the GOP is socially conservative and economically populist. It is no longer a professional class party, but one that shares the values of the working class. Could you share your thoughts on the future of the economic policies of the GOP, considering the GOP wants to seize a larger share of the minority vote and minorities, the socially conservative, are more likely to embrace welfare policies, and also more likely to spurn libertarian economic ideas? So 
he has put uh, his finger on the identity crisis that the Republican Party is going through. Uh, I think uh, I think the Republican Party has to learn from this Trump era. And there are many lessons, uh, but uh, some lessons are actually um, not not just negative. Right. Uh, I think there's some positive lessons here, too. I think Donald Trump taught Republicans that a political party uh, has to appeal to a broader base of people. So the Republican Party for many years, certainly the party that I grew up in, uh, talked a lot about economic policy and how uh, certain policies are good for corporations and job creators. Certainly, I uh, I legislated um, you know along those lines when we cut corporate taxes. Why? And and, and we thought that, still think that was a, a great decision. American companies were paying a 35% tax rate and that made them uh, a lot less competitive than uh, companies in, in most countries throughout the world were paying uh, in the 20s. So we, we thought it was a good idea. And I still strongly believe it was a good idea to cut the corporate tax rate so that US companies can, can, uh, can do better, employ more people, invest more, etc. But those are economic arguments. Those are intellectual arguments. A political party also has to be popular in order to win. And uh, I think for for many years, Republican messaging had become stale and a lot of Americans had lost their ability to relate to Republican messaging. And Donald Trump really changed that. Now, he, he did it in a way I strongly disagree with because he uh, sowed a lot of resentment and anger in society and, and made people feel insecure and ultimately provoked them uh, to, to be violent. Um, but uh, but there's still a lesson there. And uh, perhaps the Republican Party doesn't have to uh, become totally populist, even though it is trending in that direction. But certainly it must do a better job of connecting the dots for people and helping people understand why free market capitalism is um, the best policy for them and for their families, even if it means that sometimes people fail and businesses close and and people apply for jobs and lose uh, to more qualified candidates. I mean, that's, that's competition. That's the nature of it. Uh, but even if we might lose today, in the long run, we all win because we're more productive as a society. People have more choice. Uh, so so we do need to learn uh, from Donald Trump this lesson that political parties, political movements, political platforms not only need to make policy sense, but they have to be popular and they have to appeal to uh, people beyond those who sit in corporate boardrooms. So uh, free trade is another uh, important example of that. I think the reason or one of the reasons why a lot of Americans turned against free trade policies is because we didn't do a good enough job of explaining how that all works and of highlighting the many jobs and opportunities that free and fair trade uh, do generate here in our country. So I, I do think that um, Trump has left an indelible mark in the party uh, in this sense. I do think that the party will have a 
topless streak, which it 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 really didn't uh, ten years ago. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it has to become a populist party where we just want to grow the state um, to to give people some short term benefits that in the long term is going to hurt everyone and reduce everyone's prosperity. Great. Our next question touches uh, a little bit on what you were discussing. It comes from Elena Lopez Torriga, who asks, what is the main difference between the Hispanic population that votes for the Democrats and the ones that vote for Republicans? Is there any issue that triggers a change in the vote? You, when you were elected, had a high number of crossover votes, uh, perhaps you know, some of the highest in the country. So we'd love to hear your answer to that. Well, look, I think that um, when we talk about Hispanic Americans, we're we're talking about immigrants, right? Uh, whether it's people who um, themselves came to this country or the children and grandchildren of immigrants. And by nature, uh, immigrants are entrepreneurial people. You think about it, uh, how uh, some people, especially those who who come illegally to this country, the risks that they take to come to this country. And those are the ones who come illegally. But even those who, who do come legally, they're leaving everything behind. They're leaving uh, family, um, whatever job they, they may have had, uh, language usually. They're leaving all of that behind to come to a, a new land uh, because they want to prosper, because they want to work. That's why people come to this country. Uh, there's some uh, theories out there that uh, immigrants come to this country uh, because they want uh, welfare benefits. Or, that is, there are very few people who are sitting uh, at home in some other country saying, I really want to go to the United States because I hear uh, that they have great uh, public assistance programs. No, they come here because they want to work and they want their children and their grandchildren to uh, prosper in um, in the greatest economy in the world. So I think that the most effective way for Republicans to appeal to the Hispanic community is by highlighting that the Republican Party is the party of work, of the opportunity to work. I think this has played out uh, during the pandemic. It's Republican elected officials who have heard on the side of keeping businesses open and keeping schools open and making sure that people keep having that opportunity to get ahead, right? A lot of people, a lot of people on the left say, no, we need to close everything down. Well, you know, for wealthier people, that's a lot easier uh, because um, if you own a company or if you have a, if you get a guaranteed paycheck, well, uh, it doesn't really make a big difference. But for that restaurant worker who, uh, really needs that opportunity to shine and maybe to go from being a busboy to a waiter and then from being a waiter to being a store man, a restaurant manager. Being home doesn't really help, even if you're getting paid because because you're kind of stagnant. So uh, I would say that the reason that Republicans and, and even President Trump did better with uh, Hispanic voters this election uh, than in 2016 is because of that messaging and because of those policies. Uh, same thing with school closures. Uh, if you're a, a low-income Hispanic family, uh, you want your kids in school. 
I mean, they, they, they're just not learning as well at home if they're learning at all. Uh, some of these parents need to go work. They can't be home supervising their kids. So I really think that uh, those kinds of issues help Republicans a lot in 2020. We certainly saw that in South Florida, uh, Miami-Dade County, where Hillary Clinton won by about 30 points. Joe Biden only won by eight points. Dramatic shift. Why? Because a lot of Hispanic voters decided that even though they didn't like some things about President Trump and they especially didn't like um, his style, uh, they believed that Republican policies would be better for them and for their families. And also there was a fear that Democrats were moving too far left. And of course, a lot of Hispanic uh, Americans come from countries where there were socialist revolutions and they they're very sensitive to uh, those kinds of policies. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that a lot of especially recently arrived immigrants went Republican. I would say that those uh, Hispanics who are more assimilated, maybe who have been here for two or three generations, were more likely to vote Democrat. Um, because they were so turned off by uh, President Trump, the way a lot of white suburban voters were as well. Right. Our next question comes from Maria Aguilar, who asks, how does Congress fight against the promoting of conspiracy theories such as QAnon that have recently seemed to infiltrate public office? Uh, basically, what is the role for, Cong for Congress for combating those sorts of conspiracy theories, perhaps both among members, but also among the general public? I think you do what uh, the 11 Republicans who voted to strip Congresswoman Green of her committees do. You you stand up and you say, look, we're not going to expel this member because she was elected and, and, and her district has to be respected. But we are going to sanction her because she is saying things that are completely false. And in doing so, she's intoxicating our discourse and putting all members of Congress at risk. Because these types of conspiracy theories do lead to violence. Okay, the conspiracy theory that the 2020 election was stolen led to violence, which makes sense because anytime you steal something from someone, it's possible that they could react violently. Not that they should, but it can be considered a natural reaction. You know, the 72 Republicans who voted to accept the legitimate election result. That is how you show leadership, by acknowledging the truth. Some Republicans said, well, I wanted to send a message that I had concerns about how some states conducted their elections. There's nothing wrong with that. You can put out a press release, you can have a press conference, you can go visit those states and demand accountability from their state officials, but the vote to certify the election was held in the context of Mr. Trump advancing a lie that he had no evidence to support, none at all. And that judges, Republican appointed, Democrat appointed judges, the Supreme Court rejected. So we uh, have to commit to the truth, not just in our words, but also in our actions. And uh, 72 House Republicans who voted to certify the election result, I, I think that was extremely important for them to do, and I wish more had done it. Uh, what Senator McConnell did when he got up uh, and spoke on the Senate floor on the 6th of January and told his colleagues that this was the most important vote of his 36-year career in the Senate because it was about truth versus lie. 
that's how you lead. And uh, I think Senator McConnell's leadership uh, held all but six or seven Republicans together in the Senate to recognize the truth. And that was important. Uh, McConnell literally held the line for democracy that day. So um, these things shouldn't take courageous leadership. It should be easy to just acknowledge the truth. It isn't these days because there's a lot of groupthink. Uh, there's a lot of you know, mob mentality, I hate to say, uh, but we have to stand up to that because if we don't, then dishonesty triumphs. And when once we lose the truth in a society, everything starts to unravel. Great. We have time for maybe a couple of questions. This next one comes from Tarafi Torres, who asks, is there room for Latinos in the Republican Party now that a large part of the party electorate, especially after Trump, seem to lean more towards white nativist expression with little distinction between illegal immigrants and Hispanics born in the U.S.? How can the Republican Party hold this coalition together? The greatest obstacle to the Republican Party gaining or, or, or achieving majority support among Hispanic Americans is this um, nativism that uh, we've seen develop in the party over the last maybe decade, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, like I told you, Gil, the policies, not, not all of them, but many of them are in line with the aspirational nature of immigrant Americans, of Hispanic Americans. Uh, someone indicated earlier, a lot of Hispanic American families are socially conservative, okay? And, and we can uh, be socially conservative and accepting at the same time. Those two are not mutually exclusive. We can understand that we're living in a different society today than we did 50 years ago, that not every family looks the way it used to look 50 years ago. And we can be socially conservative while being accepting of other people's choices as well. What we can't do is disqualify people based on how they look, uh, on how they speak English. And unfortunately, in the Republican Party, there is a nativist current. The president uh, fed that current, that movement every day for, for, for the last five years. He may continue doing so whenever he reemerges uh, into the public scene. Uh, and we have to fight that current because that's the greatest obstacle uh, to uh, welcoming Hispanics to uh, this center-right movement, which the Republican Party should still uh, continue to be the, um, the, the party for center-right Americans, for those Americans who are centrist and right of center. Uh, a lot of immigrant Americans and Hispanic Americans think that way. They, 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 they can relate to uh, this idea of free enterprise and, and the opportunity to work and to grow and to get a good education. Uh, but when they hear those ugly messages, um, then the Republican Party disqualifies itself with a lot of Hispanic Americans, and that's completely understandable. Uh, we cannot, um, as, as, as a party, as a movement, disqualify people the way congressional Democrats disqualified me uh, when they refused to, to, to let me join the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. We should not imitate that. 
We should be better than that. We should, um, you know, build a party that welcomes every American, no matter the color of their skin, their ethnic background, uh, their accent. Everyone who believes in free enterprise and the opportunity to work and to prosper and to grow and to have choices uh, and and uh, uh, leave our children and future generations better off, everyone who believes in that should be welcome into the Republican Party. Today, a lot of people feel excluded because of this nativist current, and we have to fight it. Great. And the time that we have left, let's end with this great question from Hosman Betancourt, who says, um, who asks about Hispanics in Congress. As of 10 years ago from today, do you think that Hispanic American Congress members may act as a binding force between the parties, acting as a firewall to stop radicalized ideologies that may influence both parties? So, Carlos, when we began, I asked you to look into the past. Now, Hosman is asking you to look into the future. We're asking a lot of divination from you today. But do you think that this is something that uh, could foreseeably happen? Yeah, Hispanic Americans in Congress are poised to really help heal this country. Uh, there's there's some Hispanic Americans who do uh, add a fuel to the fire and and who uh, do uh, feed conspiracy theories. And but uh, when you look at um, most Hispanic Americans in Congress, uh, Congressman Gonzalez from Texas, Salazar, Jimenez, Diaz Balart. Uh, Democrats like uh, Darren Soto uh, from Florida, Salud Carvajal from California. These are all people who really um, are serving for, for all the right reasons. They want the institution to work for everybody. They want uh, Congress to come together when possible to address uh, a lot of the big policy questions and challenges that have remained unaddressed for too long, like immigration reform, like uh, climate policy, uh, like gun reform policy. Uh, we um, are at a stalemate on so many of these issues, and a lot of the Hispanic Americans in Congress are pragmatists. Uh, they come from um, you know, working class families who 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 uh, were just trying to um, you know do good for their kids and and make as much as they could and and provide a safe environment uh, for for their families and 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 improve their neighborhoods. So they take that attitude and that predisposition to Congress and try to work on on some of these tough issues and 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 fight uh, those who are trying to. Uh, diminish others and to divide the country for their own uh, personal gain. So I, I am hopeful that Hispanic Americans can help lead us out of this dark chapter in our politics that began some years ago and that uh, seems to only get worse uh, by the day. I think we can turn it around. And I think a lot of uh, our, our representatives in Congress who come from the Hispanic community are in a position to help lead that effort. Excellent. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for being here with us. Really always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for sharing thank your you. insights uh, with and, us. Uh, congratulations to, to everyone. Uh, I wish everyone well. Thanks for taking the time to, to listen to me today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to give us a rating and to subscribe to the podcast. If you want to learn more about AI's work on college campuses, visit AI.org or click on the link in the show notes. Lastly, make sure to follow us at AI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students. We'll see you next time.